is perhaps one of the more vital of other publications. I've selected that for the present series. For historical orientation, the material was first distributed in the form of Letters and Lessons to Students about 1940. It first appeared in print and book form in 1942, therefore approximately 18 years ago. In the interval since the writing of the book, there have been many and marked changes in our way of life. And uh, looking back over the years and trying to estimate the changes, it still seems to me that the essential principles that set forth have not been changed or greatly modified by any of the so-called discoveries of science or by the elements of modern progress. We say this with full appreciation of the fact that any work done by a human being must be dated. No individual can possibly penetrate beyond the sphere of experience. Therefore, it is a mistake to assume that any writing is infallible. It relates to its own times and to the conditions that exist in those times. And its lingering validity depends upon the degree of a basic truth which is contained in the principal premises and objectives of a given work. I feel in this case that the book has a certain strength, having been derived from those sources of knowledge which have had undiminished authority for more than 2,500 years. We may outgrow many things, but we have not yet and will not outgrow the need for virtue, the need to develop integrities, or the pressing requirement for individual security in troubled times. These elements remain, and while they remain, philosophy and comparative religion uh, maintain the validity of their essential uh, points of view. The purpose of the book, very largely, was to meet what I believed at that time to be a basic need. <clears throat> there has always been uh, in the West a group of persons seriously desiring to advance consciousness through some form of organized program of study and discipline. And in this book we present what I feel to be a comparatively safe interpretation of certain established disciplines practiced among both Eastern and Western nations, but in their complete and original forms, not entirely practical to Western man. The human being must work against the reference frame of the conditions in which he finds himself. It is not reasonable or proper to demand that any person place himself in a situation in which he is at great personal disadvantage or to attempt procedures uh, which are not likely to succeed in the way of life with which he is most familiar. Our text, therefore, is concerned with a kind of yoga, a modification of East Indian philosophy 
strengthened and directed through the contributions of other Eastern schools and brought into Western focus by means of Platonism, Neoplatonism, and Gnosticism. Thus we feel that we have bridged the primary interval of learning, the interval which divides naturally Eastern and Western cultures. Eastern culture is essentially subjective. Western culture essentially objective. This may not always remain the truth. There is a continual process in nature which tends to lead to an alternation of polarities among living things. It is therefore quite conceivable that in the course of time Eastern civilization will become highly objective and that Western culture may in turn become more distinctly subjective. But modern man, living in our present century and under the pressure of contemporary problems, still remains in the West essentially objective. Uh, when in doubt, he takes a rather aggressive point of view. He may very likely uh, strike out against circumstances with all the vitality and libido at his command. He is going to fight his way, work his way, struggle his way, or even talk his way through the various problems that arise. He therefore uses a tremendous amount of objective energy and has come to conclude that expenditure of energy is the essential ingredient in progress. There may be some doubt as to this. Certainly there is some grave question as to whether the individual can fight his way from ignorance to wisdom. This point of view then leads us to the need for Eastern subjective balance of thinking. The individual must be taught that the search for truth is not a competitive quest for success as we know such a questing in Western life. The search for improvement is a very much more subjective thing and in order to succeed at all it must be undertaken with a right kind of attitude. It must be approached not offensively or even defensively. It must be approached with a simple directness of action, which again seems strange to us. Western civilization has gradually deprived man of direct action. He may deny this, but actually he is continually conditioned and whenever he feels the impulse to act in a direct manner, he begins also to sense reactionary cautions arising in his own temperament, warnings that direct action may lead to loss of social adjustment. In this book, therefore, we have attempted certain basic principles of yoga, but we have tried to also defend the student against the dangers of yoga for Western man. We have tried to point out, for example, uh, that the scientific aspect of self-development is not as yet suited to us. And since the uh, preparation of this book, we have had very strong support for this particular point of view. Western man having become aware of the powerful instruments of knowledge 
has already gravely endangered his own survival. By his belief that scientific processes are legitimate and may be used regardless of moral consequences. The same thing that could happen and did happen in society in releasing upon us the dangers of what we now call the atomic age is a good symbol of what might occur within us if we rely entirely upon a scientific approach uh, to the attainment of self-mastery. Theoretically, the West would like to approach the problem of man with complete scientific thoroughness. Actually, however, science without certain value controls, without certain uh, background of culture, can be, and usually is, extremely dangerous. In the East, where yoga or Zen or Taoism are prevalent beliefs. We have a culture that has been conditioned for ages, a long ways unfamiliar to us. In the first place, the great body of Eastern mankind has been unaware of what we term success and only slightly aware of what we call progress. Eastern man has not sought uh, the expansion of a way of life as we have in the West. Also from the earliest experience of Oriental history, Oriental culture, the religious factors have been vitally dominant. Eastern man has built his entire way of life upon a compliance with a pattern of universal principles. He has always regarded heaven as first. He has always been ready to sacrifice earth for heaven. He has always been ready to sacrifice wealth for interior uh, contemplation. He has been quick to renounce this world for the other. He has never felt the pressing need to compromise his spiritual principles for the advancement of his industrial or political states. Now, of course, this has its drawbacks. As a result of this attitude, Asia was for centuries uh, very tardy in its industrialism. It also suffered an almost unbroken sequence of bad government. It uh, lacked much of the improvement much of the scientific knowledge, medical knowledge, professional knowledge that we possess in our Western life. Having placed value where it believed value to belong, it willingly sacrificed for value. In our Western experience, value is now held largely in terms of objective success. Value means the security not of the soul, but of worldly adjustment. It means not that man becomes better, but that he becomes stronger. Not that he becomes necessarily wiser, but that he becomes more skillful. These differences affect our religious patterns. Western man is not conditioned for asceticism. He is not conditioned to take on, without modification, a way of life that has belonged to another people for thousands of years. 
we see an equally unfortunate situation when Eastern man suddenly tries to become westernized. The result is a very unhappy and uh, sometimes almost ridiculous situation. Uh, Eastern man has not the background uh, to take on uh, the perspectives and objectives of the West without, without at least a few generations of conditioning. Thus, in the East, Western practices and policies have led to great stress and to the disruption of the cultural life of the people. Our primary concern then is that the West is in need of a greater spiritual integrity. We need values. We see in the East certain monuments of these values. And let us again be quite fair about this. The term East is not synonymous with spirit, nor is it necessarily synonymous with value. When we speak of the East, we do not speak of a hemisphere populated with saints. We do not speak of a people faultless and utterly dedicated to their spiritual objectives. We speak rather of a polyglot, a people, many of them, not well oriented in their own beliefs, not free from selfishness or greed, not able to achieve world peace any more than we have in the West. Therefore, when we mean East, we mean rather the basic principles of Eastern philosophy, even as when we speak constructively of Christianity, we certainly do not speak of the clashing of 500 creeds. We speak rather of basic principles as taught by the Holy Nazarene along the shores of the Lake of Galilee. We speak of essentials. Now the essentials of the East have given us the basis of the yogic doctrine and several other important oriental schools. These values, I think, are somewhat more appreciated and more guarded and more respected in the East than parallel values of similar significance are respected in the West. But this is by degree only. It is not a clean-cut difference. It is not a difference of where one is all right and the other is all wrong. Thus, the oriental philosophy uh, uh, with which we are most concerned may be almost as strange to many Easterners as it is to us. I remember speaking on the problem of oriental philosophy in the Albert Theatre, Calcutta. And after the talk, several Hindus uh, told me that they had no idea that these principles were in their own philosophy. Uh, thus, we cannot uh, be too sure of these things. Mahatma Gandhi had the same experience. He did not realize or understand the wealth of his own uh, cultural background until it was brought directly to his attention by English students in London. Thus, it isn't fair for us merely to assume that we must now uh, uh, acknowledge eternal gratitude to the East any more than we should neglect the West. The principle involved is one of earnest searching, a definite effort to discover what is valuable, and gradually to eliminate the concept of hemispheric difference, as we now think of it today. We now think of Eastern wisdom and Western wisdom. Sometime we hope that we will think of the world's wisdom, 
the wisdom of all good persons, all dedicated human beings seeking better ways of life. The Western way, as we know it, centers around certain experiences. And one of these experiences is our own peculiar scatteredness. The average Western person is not self-disciplined. He is not able to control his own moods, even in lesser things, in the ordinary experiences of life. Probably the most controlled uh, person in the Western Hemisphere is the American Indian, who, uh, however, we scarcely regard today as uh, a proper source of spiritual instruction, although I'm inclined to think we're making a mistake. This point, however, is true, that we, as a people, are not self-disciplined. We are moved constantly by impulse. We know not the source of this impulse, nor the direction in which it is impelling us. We live a kind of day-to-day -day life, hoping to get by, and hoping that we will have the skill to mo tomorrow to mend the errors of today. Instead of mending, however, this habit of disorganization generally results in the complete collapse of the fabric of our purposes. As a result of that, Western man does not have directives. He does not like to accept the directives of others. They seem to um, over-influence his individuality. Yet he exercises very little self-directive. Therefore, we have thought of this book of self-unfoldment in terms of an introduction to self-directiveness, uh, the, the means by which we will gradually and naturally come uh, to a stronger power to direct and control ourselves. To do this, we must practice certain world-established policies of discipline. Discipline is not an Eastern word, essentially. It is as commonly found among the Greeks. It is simply a term to indicate that the individual has taken hold of his own life, that he is not permitting uh, the uh, various instincts which constitute his personality, to have sovereignty over the total pattern of his life purpose. He is learning, or must learn through discipline, that it is not necessary to have a bad disposition, that it is not necessary uh, to be jealous, it is not necessary to hate people, it is not necessary to be selfish or self-centered or arrogant. It is not necessary to be afraid, nor to be a worrier, nor to be a gossip. These excesses which sort of sweep over us and take control of us, so that, as uh, St. Paul says, when we would do good, evil is ever nigh unto us. This situation is not necessary. It is foolish and unreasonable to assume that man, the noblest creature that we know, has no way in which to polarize his own nobility, that he has been given faculties and powers beyond those of any other creature visible to us in nature. These faculties and powers are not only sufficient to enable him to exist, they are sufficient to enable him to live well. 
Now, many people, when confronted with this problem of self-discipline, simply go to pieces. They are unable to handle uh, the basic elements of resisting an impulse which may arise within themselves. Why, possibly, has Asia a little better skill in this particular direction? Perhaps it is because Asiatic peoples have never enjoyed the security that Western man has known. Uh, material life in the East was never such a wonderful and many-splendored thing that man could conceive of no better state. There was very little peace in the Eastern world any more than in the Western. The Eastern individual had to adjust himself to pressures which have generally relaxed among our people. He had to face changes, real and sometimes desperate. He had to depend more upon himself than upon the security of his culture. He never seems to have developed this attitude of blaming his politicians for what was wrong with him. He has never sensed that other people could give him a good world. He took the world with a strange, almost animal-like simplicity. This is the way it was. This is the way it is. And in this world as it is, each individual must do his best. Now we take the world somewhat as it is. In fact, we are getting a little fatalistic about it at the moment. But it has never really come home to us that we do not need to be victims of the world. That it is not necessary for us to go along miserably day after day complaining about everything and feeling that our complaints are justified and our situation is hopeless simply because we are unable to control the conduct of half or three quarters of a billion other human beings. Eastern man never had that attitude. It has never occurred to him that his happiness was dependent upon good government or that his security was dependent upon high wages and organized labor. These things might be nice. They might give him, perhaps, in the end, the same attitude we have. But he never got that far. He was never in a position to worry about what he had the way we do. His major worry was about what he did not have. Today, we are the victims of our possessions. And in, a, in this uh, philosophy, we have come to, con to regard our material state as being so important that its mistakes are fatal even as its advantages are beneficial. So we live in a world of powerful extremes which pull us back and forth and a world in which there seems to be a legitimate reason why everyone should be unhappy. Well, perhaps there is, but to the Eastern mind this would not be interpreted in this way. Unhappiness would be regarded as a direct personal challenge. The individual who is unhappy would say to himself in Asia, what have I done that is wrong? Over here, the same individual would explain in a long, involved manner what is wrong with everyone else and why he cannot be happy because his friends, relatives, neighbors, family, and enemies are all operating contrary to his inclinations. This type of difference uh, is very clear and very definite. And toward this, our idea of a book 
dedicated to the principle of self-discipline seem to be good. Now, if we were in Asia working on the problem of self-discipline, it would be comparatively simple. A guru would say to his disciples, sit there for five years and don't move till I tell you to, and he would be there for five years. In this country, it would seem a very difficult situation because who will pay the taxes? Uh, also, if in the East a disciple was told to practice a certain attitude for five years or ten years, he would do so without question. Today we will do nothing without question in the West. And much of our questioning is in the simple and solid hope that we are going to be able to question our way out of any effort on our own part, that we want to explain why anything we do not like is wrong, anything we do not want to do is unnecessary. If we tried to follow, therefore, all of these eastern paths of, of mystical growth, we would probably end in a very antisocial situation. We would be forced to make decisions primarily unreasonable and unfair to other people. Here's another strong situation that has to be faced. In the Orient, particularly where philosophic principles uh, dominate, Families are united in these principles. All members of the family have the same basic belief and the same basic acceptance of value. If, for example, a householder in India should decide to take upon himself the holy life and go out to become a recluse in the mountains, there would be no question as to the importance and the rightness of his doing so his family and friends, his children, would beg him to do that which he believed to be right. Here such an action would be regarded as little better than an evasion of family responsibility. The question would arise, who will support who? This question does not arise where all members of the family regard the holy life as the most important and distinguished of all things. One way or another, the family would unite its resources and carry on. There would never be a question about this. It would not be an eccentric thing. It would not be an evasion. It would be an acceptance. And it would be held firmly and strongly that those left behind and thrown upon heavier responsibilities would be themselves most fortunate inasmuch as their own opportunity to grow through adjustment would be increased or enlarged. Thus, it would seem that in the West, such a pattern would certainly not be acceptable. Nor is it acceptable for an individual who has established a way of life in the West to attempt to advance his own spiritual destiny with total disregard for those around him. There may be uh, evidence in the dialogues of Buddha that the individual so doing has performed a virtue, but in the West it would not be a virtue. It would mean a shattering of a situation and the forcing upon other persons of responsibilities for which they are not prepared and for which possibly they have no inclination. Thus in the West, the householder's position is different. The scholar's position is different. The scientist, the physician's position is different. 
All of these differences have to be taken into consideration. Otherwise, what we term religion would become a disintegrating force in society. It was perhaps in this emergency also that we found coming in Asia the rise of the second great age of Buddhistic thinking, which was introduced about the beginning of the second century AD by the Arhat Nagarjuna. This was a modification of Buddhist philosophy, and this modification finally influenced practically all of the religious philosophies of Asia. It was the modification of the individual growing without excessive attitude or action, growing and unfolding without violent renunciations, growing and unfolding by working through the places he occupies, rather than attempting to shift the pattern of life. In other words, the virtue or merit, as it was called in Buddhism, was to be gained not only by devoting one's life to the spiritual abstractions, but could equally be gained by the unselfish dedication of one's life to the common service of the needs of others. Thus, growth was no longer a solo flight to nirvana. Growth became a dedication, an achievement through renunciation, the individual accepting the burden with a new internal understanding. This is applicable to Western man. The uh, realization that the individual can attain a high degree of self-discipline, and by this means, an important major growth in the unfoldment of his internal life without becoming unadjusted, without departing from those patterns of responsibility which he has properly and reasonably accepted, and which having accepted, he is under duty uh, to fulfill. This uh, Mahayana or Northern Buddhistic uh, innovation uh, gave the Eastern world a tremendous step forward, making possible more progress, more development on a physical level than had previously been conceivable. It also taught us the importance that Socrates uh, also emphasized so definitely. He was asked once where the best place to study was, and he answered immediately, the place where you are. Here is the place of learning. Here is the situation which invites to discipline. Here are all the inducements of growth. Here is the important but complicated schoolroom through which we are supposed to learn all those lessons necessary for the integration of our inner lives. This, in a sense, makes more reason than perhaps our modern psychological attitude. For our psychological attitude has just a little of Brahmanism in it. In psychology today, the individual struggling for normalcy breaks all patterns, or many patterns, in the effort to regain his own integration. If a situation is bad, break it up, walk out of it, leave it behind. The Western physician is not at all sure that Western man is strong enough to work out a problem. More likely, he must walk out of the problem. Also in psychological thinking, uh, the effort to achieve integration becomes a selfish uh, project in a great many cases. 
It must be attained at the expense of something or someone. Eastern philosophy, particularly Mahayana, uh, indicates that growth is a personal thing. But it is the kind of a personal thing which, if properly administered, will never result in loss or pain to another person. That like spiritual wealth, which can be accumulated without causing others to be poorer, true grace of spirit, true inward life, does not require the help of our neighbors or our friends, nor does it mean that we should withhold any normal or reasonable help from them, or to advance our ways in conflict with their uh, convictions about what is right. These processes are so quietly and internally uh, firm that the individual can grow without hurting others. This point was a perhaps a little more consequence in 1940 than it is to many people of today, because many of, the, of you who will remember those years remember the extravagant efforts that were being made by religious groups in the United States uh, to attempt a condition of spirituality. The, the, the search uh, for truth was almost fanatical. Uh, the individual pressed on regardless of his own capacities or his own abilities and totally ignoring his own debilities. To him, truth was a mysterious something that lay just beyond his reach, something he must struggle for. And he also had a, an optimism that somewhere someone would tell him about it, particularly at a reasonable remuneration. Thus, the schools and groups sprang up. I remember one group that had as its immediate goal the full and complete understanding of the absolute. Uh, this was not thought of in terms of growth. It was thought of in terms of a trick of the mind, an attitude by means of which suddenly all ignorance was dispelled. This group did very well in its own way. Of course, no one ever achieved the promised end. But the average person didn't know whether he'd achieved it or not as he had no comprehension of either the finite or the infinite. But uh, in the terms of the competitive uh, spirituality of the day, uh, this particular group immediately uh, developed uh, a split within itself. And a second group came into existence out of this one, proceeding further under the glowing title, The Absolute Absolute. Uh, this went on... Uh, to infinity ad nauseum. There was no end to it. No one ever got there. But everyone was quite certain that some uh, extraordinary state was available to them simply because they were citizens of the Western Hemisphere or had sufficient money in their bank account. This situation has somewhat cleared. But every once in a while we see a sad case of reaction. Actually, we still are a little optimistic, uh, but uh, many years of disillusionment has tempered our hopes. We are beginning to sense that whatever this thing is that man needs, this inner truth that he requires, is not going to be quickly attained. It is something that he must labor for, and his growth will be measured 
in the terms of the intelligent discipline with which he directs his own life. Now discipline may itself need a moment of definition. A discipline is an action or a controlling by the will. It is the individual asserting value over impulse. The individual perhaps depends upon his conscience to determine that which shall be the directive of his discipline. But when every person in the presence of that which is not right strongly resolves to cling to the right, he has exercised a measure of self-discipline. The fullness of this discipline, of course, depends upon his understanding of right. The more he knows, the better his discipline can be. But knowledge does not necessarily result in discipline. Knowledge can be abstract. An individual can intellectually comprehend many things and live as a badly undisciplined person. Therefore, knowledge, wisdom, or understanding have little value unless they contribute to the individual's direction of his own conduct. This is the point that Plato so clearly makes, that no wisdom, no learning is valid unless it is proven or demonstrated by its effect upon conduct. Unless we become better, we are not better. Unless our ability to control negatives and sustain positives increases, there is no indication that our religions or our philosophies or our arts are meaningful to us. An individual can study music, and he may become informed as a musicologist. Uh, but for most people, the proof of his musical knowledge is his ability uh, to exhibit that knowledge uh, by an adequate technique in vocal or instrumental music. Thus, unless our impulses, our desires, our convictions lead us to the disciplines, as in arts or sciences, by which we become capable of using knowledge, of transforming ideas into impulses which may impel us to years of discipline or disciplined exercise. Until such discipline sets in, there is no movement within the consciousness. There is no essential change in the substantial nature of man. So disciplines have to be, but they must also be with a minimum of effort. And one of the points that is clear in all Eastern philosophy, and which we have tried to make very clear in this book, is the idea of effortless effort. Western man measures effort actually in terms of ergs of energy. If he is violently active, he is busy. Whether he is doing anything or not is not important. We, we seem to feel uh, that if we see a man straining to the last ounce of his strength, that this individual is really giving everything he has. He may be, but he doesn't have very much, because this kind of exhibition is not solutional, except perhaps if he be a professional weightlifter. Outside of this, uh, there is not much to be gained. Effortless effort is the Eastern way of approaching this tremendous sense of difficulty with which we have always um, surrounded 
the concept of growth. The moment we speak of growth or of discipline or of, of philosophical development, we sort of sense a long gray-bearded schoolmaster with a willow switch in one hand uh, demanding that we produce our lessons and have them right and punishing us for the slightest misdemeanor. In other words, discipline reminds us of school, and the moment we get out of school, we do not wish to be reminded of it again. So discipline has become a bad word. It has become almost as nasty a word as philosophy. It seems to represent hard work with very little profit. It suggests a kind of individual who is willing to dedicate his life to non-profitable uh, enterprises and therefore may die a little better but much poorer, which is considered to be a very serious disaster. In the East, the whole theory of discipline lies in the fact that no energy is required. The reason why we have to use energy in discipline at the present time is because the will, the energy factor, is itself divided. We are giving more will energy to our desire than we are to the impulse to control that desire. Those two streams of will come head-on into collision, and whichever will is the stronger will ultimately uh, vanquish the other. The question is, is the will of what we should do greater than the will of what we want to do? but which we know perhaps isn't the best. To fight out this to Western man is a great moral issue. It is a little uh, like old Saint Jerome wrestling with the devil. It gets to be a, a really a conflict. It becomes almost a mortal battle between uh, the strength of our desires and the comparative weakness of our convictions. As long as the will is thus internally divided, we are not going to accomplish very much. Every time we desire in one direction, a counteraction of the will will arise. Whenever we decide to be especially good, the desire to be not so good is also strong. In the Eastern philosophy, the answer lies in the simple unity of the will principle. The will must move in one direction. The moment this unity of will is achieved, the individual is no longer subject to this tremendous discord. So the East divides the will into two terms or concepts, divine will and human will, or divine purpose and human purpose. Unless the individual uh, addicts himself completely to one or the other, there must be conflict. If he addicts himself, however, entirely to human purpose, experience proves that he has a bad time, because these purposes are not sufficient, and the human nature is not wise enough uh, to lead its own compound to a state of security. Thus, the sacrifice of control usually leads to excess. On the other hand, the higher will nature of man depends for its power and authority upon 
philosophy, upon wisdom, upon an internal conviction about reality. The moment conviction becomes stronger than doubt, the power of the will is no longer in conflict with itself. Thus, in the Eastern concept of discipline, there is really no effort at all. It is merely a gradual education of what man wants to do. And when he wants to do that which is next and necessary, he does it without stress or effort. The only reason why we have trouble in growing is because there is something in us that does not want to grow. And that something is either selfishness or laziness. And uh, opposed by this static, we have to use more dynamic than is necessary or proper to almost any project. And as we go through the book, some of these points would make clear. This, I think, represents the basic argument of the book. Namely, that there is not only the possibility of discipline, the need for it, that it is rewarded by a certain extension of inner ability. That the disciplined person, having fulfilled certain simple uh, laws and rules of conduct, finds an internal available, becomes more and more aware of the basic realities within himself. And from these basic realities, he gains a continually increasing and enlarging power uh, toward the final achievement of his own integration. And he does this in a simple and direct manner, without any obvious symbolism, without any violent, tempestuous struggles, and very far from the Western concept that man must be forever locked in a deadly war with sin. The Eastern idea of sin is quite different. Sin to the East is simply weakness. And uh, you can't fight weakness, because if you have anything to fight it with, you are strong. And where strength is, there is no weakness. The only reason why weakness wins is because no strength is exercised. And what we term sin to Eastern thinking is the individual simply failing to be himself. And as a result of this failure, involving himself in a series of situations which endanger his happiness, his security, and perhaps even his life. On these principles, then, we have tried to outline a simple uh, textbook for thoughtful persons. And in honor of certain Eastern ideas, we have inserted here and there, through the text, groups of fables. Fables being, in a sense, a wonderful way of teaching. These fables are mostly mystical legends which have enriched the literature of Eastern peoples. The wonderful power of the fable lies in its fantasy, and that this fantasy can strike directly into the emotional psychic content of man. If argument and discussion reach the mind, fable seems to strike into the emotional center of the individual. Fables are either pathetic, or they are happy, or they are gracious, or they tell us stories which move us. They cause us to select heroes and heroines and to feel a certain um, antagonism to villains and uh, other disruptible characters. The fable gives us an emotional warmth. It causes us to feel something rather than to merely think. This is another strong point in Eastern wisdom. The importance of man's 
feelings as guides and leaders to conduct. If the internal life of the individual is warm, enriched, beautiful feeling, he has another powerful defense against that which is unworthy of him. He finds certain emotional strength, the strength of his inner affections, his regards, his venerations. These things he gains courage from. They help him in moments of stress to do the thing which is beautiful, to cling to that which is fine or gracious or proper, as the Chinese might call it. So in the fables we have little stories about big problems. And these little stories help us to realize that big problems are really little and that we have falsely magnified them. So between the allegory, the symbol, the fable, and the instruction, we hope that a certain insight will be gained, an insight which will enrich the person in a moderate, natural, relaxed, orderly improvement of himself. All things done graciously and kindly, without even spiritual ambition, but with this wonderful sense of adjustment to a life that is larger than our own. If we can achieve this sense of adjustment, much that is good will be attained. Now there are certain sections in the book, and I have marked a few of them for little special consideration this evening. Things where it seems to me uh, we can gain, perhaps through a little further insight. Naturally, in the course of time, we are bound to reflect upon some of these problems. And it would be foolish indeed uh, to deny that probably the wording could be improved. That uh, actually uh, many of these ideas could be enriched. I do not think, however, that this is a desperate situation. I think perhaps it does, however, invite us to just such a group of studies as those we are beginning tonight, simply because we can span perhaps 18 years of study and thought and bring these definitions a little more clearly into focus. Uh, the very beginning of the book deals with what we term theories of discipline. I uh, cannot this evening give you page numbers in every case, but maybe later I'll try and do so inasmuch as my marked copy of this book is from a different setting published in London. Therefore, uh, you will find it word for word the same, but I'm not sure that the pagination is identical. But in the very beginning of the first section, we give definitions of three processes uh, or disciplines of ancient religion, and I think these offer us further food for contemplation. We contrast or attempt to distinguish clearly between meditation, realization, and illumination. We point out that meditation is a contemplation of divine realities through a certain internal discipline of insight. Uh, meditation naturally must be without tension or effort. Meditation is 
actually this very concept of be still and know. Thus meditation is not an aggressive discipline. Meditation is not a search for something. It is not a conjuring up of anything within the consciousness of the individual. Nor is it an effort by the mind or by the consciousness to impose its own convictions upon a mystical reverie. The great danger that confronts the average Western student of meditation is that he is meditating from a conviction instead of toward one. He is using certain familiars in their accepted and familiar way. Therefore, it is very easy for meditation to simply become a psychological a reinforcement of attitudes held to be true. This is why, perhaps, uh, even in uh, 1940, when it was comparatively unknown in this country, we brought in uh, considerable material bearing upon Zen. Because in Zen, we have perhaps uh, the very uh, substance of the meditative uh, concept. It is in meditation, not what we meditate upon, but the level of what we meditate with that is of the greatest significance. Uh, the Eastern mystic takes for granted that in every person and in every being there is the substratum of the eternal mind or of the eternal life. This has its own nature. Uh, to meditate, therefore, upon uh, the nature of being is much as though we were looking out upon a great sunset from a mountain or across a great scene stretching out uh, like perhaps uh, one of the beautiful paintings of the Chinese Taoist mystics. Meditation is man's becoming capable of acceptance, is becoming capable of so reducing the human equation in his own nature that he becomes aware of the divine equation. Theoretically, in meditation, if the person can completely eliminate himself, he will then become completely reality conscious. This uh, is a little difficult, perhaps, for Western people to think about, and I've heard people wonder whether they could safely afford to eliminate themselves. Their friends thought they could, but they, the individual himself was not quite so certain. Actually, I don't believe that we need to be too fearful about this discipline developing over rapidly. I don't think there is any danger of the individual wiping himself off uh, as a chalk mark on a wet slate. Uh, actually, all of these achievements are highly relative. Buddha, however, pointed out that even the smallest step in the direction of reality is accompanied by a certain enlargement of reality. As we approach it, it seems to approach us.
and somewhere in this mutual approachness of things we come finally to an identity by meditation therefore by degrees we eliminate error we become quiet the purpose the discipline leading to meditation is the one of controlled relaxation now this is a particularly valuable to us now because of the tremendous tension of Western man I think we may say as Eastern and Zen scholars have pointed out that 15 minutes of adequate meditation will relieve the individual of all of the tensions of a busy day because meditation is a complete rest rest is not achieved through the ceasing of labor rest is, is the result of the ceasing of conflict and in the individual whose life is made up of a series of conflicting factors whether he works or plays whether he is busy or attempting to do nothing the conflict continues the conflict in human temperament continues until it is solved it will never solve itself it will never end because we change the situations in which we live uh, the conflicts may change with situation but the principle of conflict will not cease until the individual achieves the discipline of meditation the discipline of meditation is one expression of the power of the person over himself